As the ushers come forward, they're going to have Bibles for you. It's important that you grab a Bible because today the scriptures we're going to be going through is from Exodus 1 to Joshua chapter 6. And now I can see who's been picking up the Bible. Okay, that's 143 chapters of pure gold. And we're going to try to go through it all this morning. That's the redemption story that we're going to be tackling this morning. But I'm not going to ask you to, to, to stay late so you can put your phones away. Those who are going to be calling Swiss Chalet to change your pickup time. All right. We're going to try to keep it on time. And I'm not going to allow you to Swish LA, uh, do the Swiss Chalet chicken, uh, chicken uh, run on late. Wow. Exodus chapter 3. Why don't you turn there with me? We're going to focus extensively on the beginning of the story, and I'm going to kind of walk through the rest of the narrative with you and hopefully bring to light what God's trying to show us in the midst of the narrative. As you're turning there to Exodus chapter 3, you've got you to know, though, this, this Exodus book picks off where Genesis left off. All right. The idea that Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the, all his boys are awaiting a kingdom, a nation of their own, through which God is going to bless the entire world, the nations of the world. At the close of Genesis, we see that Joseph, the slave king, has been an instrument of God in saving both Israel and Egypt, the land in which they're living at that time, at the end of Genesis. But since then, 400 years have passed. That's a long time. 400 years ago, 1618, Pocahontas is alive. Okay? This is a long time. They've been waiting for this land, right? By this time, Israel has grown from a, a group of, of a big family to 2 million people strong in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh who sits on the throne of Egypt, a throne only available to him, by the way, because God has saved Egypt from a massive famine. Pharaoh has decided that he's going to try to thwart God's plans, God's commands that he's given to his people, the command to multiply, to fill the earth. And he started to murder Israelites, newborn boys. He's trying to keep Israel captive in the kingdom of Egypt as his slaves. Friends, these are dark days for Israel. Not just dark days, not just a dark lifetime. This is a dark 400 years. Anybody here ever had dark days? Come on. Anybody here in the midst of a dark day? It is not easy sometimes in life. Have you ever wondered, like Israel certainly did, what's the deal, God? I mean, how does my life have any significance, any meaning? God, why don't you rescue me from all of this? Why don't you rescue me today? Why is life so hard? Why can I not get any satisfaction? Some of us will even go this far and say, God, I thought you were good. Anybody ever? Come on. Moses wrestled with these stories. 
He tried to take the narrative into his own hands. It didn't work out when he was 40. It's important for you to know that all of Abraham's family understands those questions that you wrestle with every single day. But what they need, friends, what we need, we need to understand that our story, your story, my story, are but threads. Threads that, that, that is being woven together by the creator who spoke the earth into being by the command of his voice. They're being woven together by the king of all kings who's, who's got this grand meta-narrative that he is using. That he's using to declare his glory and the beauty and the weight of this glory, friends, it dwarfs. It dwarfs you. It dwarfs me. Dwarfs Pharaoh, dwarfs Moses, even dwarfs the two million Israelites that are in this story. It, this narrative should direct our attention away from us, away from the when God and the why God to the ultimate who God of all of history. Who? The question is, who will you trust? Will you trust him? As his answer might be, Wait. Will you trust that he has good plans, that he has plans to give you the kingdom that he has promised to give you? In Exodus chapter three, the who of the redemption story is revealed to a dejected 80-year-old shepherd named Moses. It says this in Exodus three, chapter two, if you'll turn there with me. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Moses, in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. This is the burning bush story. But notice, you must notice who's in the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord. Most scholars agree, whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you are seeing the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Christ. So Jesus is in the midst of this bush, and he has a message to declare to his people. It says this in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land to a good land and broad land. What is he saying here? He's saying, hey, 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 Moses, I see it. I am a God that sees. I am a God that hears. I am a God that understands the suffering. But I'm also a God that will deliver you from that suffering. He keeps going. Moses is wondering how this is going to happen. God's how you... How's this going to happen? Verse 10. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. What's Moses' response to this massive task to go face the most powerful man in Pharaoh? Moses said to God, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh. I tried this already. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. That was God's response. You see it? Who am I? God is saying, it's not you that's the who. I am the who. I will be 
with you. And he continues to, to reveal himself in this way. Verse 13, we see Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, if I go through with this plan, okay, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Name change here. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, this, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, a variation of I am. I am the Lord Okay. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is his name forever. And thus am I, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. If you're paying attention to the narrative so far, he's been called God and God Almighty. But this is a new name. He is the Lord. He is the I am. What's he saying here? He's saying, hey, 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 I'm the uncreated one. I am the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, hey, I'm the real boss. I've always been the real boss. Not you, Moses. Not Pharaoh who thinks he's great because a nation, nation is worshiping him. And not you, friend, who are reading this today. He is the I am. He is the Lord. He's saying, I am your king. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. You need to understand something about this name. This name bears great significance throughout the story that we're going to be unpacking today. This name is repeated 174 times from chapter 3 to 14. What's going on here? God is saying, I'm the who of your salvation. When they struggle with this when they first get tested and their faith in God. When Moses goes and he declares to Pharaoh that he's got to let the people go, Pharaoh has this response. Just listen to Pharaoh's response. I'm sure you've heard it. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Pharaoh's flexing here like, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? Let me tell you, Pharaoh, let me tell you who the Lord is and what he does with his voice. Okay, with his voice, he spoke and he commanded and the earth and the universe came to be. With his voice, he flung stars into space and said, right there, star, that's who you're dealing with. Could you imagine what is possibly more out of place for a creature and to look at its creator and say, hey, I'm stronger than you. To mock the creator. Really? The guy who breathed you into being? Really? What's God's response to the Israelites in this time? Turn to, turn to Exodus chapter 6. Listen to this. I love this. Verse 1. How's God going to encourage them? How's he going to tell them to stay the course? But the Lord said to Moses, Now, at this first test when Pharaoh flexes, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Who's going to do it to Pharaoh? I'm going to do it to Pharaoh. 
for with a strong hand, he will send you out. You know what I mean? He's going to send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. He's like, in other words, I'm going to show Pharaoh who's boss. With all of his strength, Pharaoh is going to be pushing you out himself. How does he keep going with this? Let's continue. Verse 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to, said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they have lived as sojourners. Okay? Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. What is he saying here? Hey, 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 I'm the narrator so far. I've given you my name. I've promised to do it, and I will do it. I see your struggle. It's in my court. I'm going to take care of this. And he continues with that thought process in verse 6. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Not Pharaoh. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you. That's an important word. It's to buy back that which is rightfully yours and to bring it back into your household. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. What's that? With my guns. These bad boys are going to redeem you. I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm, with a great axe of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you. You can count on that. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You see what's happening here? He goes, I am the omnipotent one. I've got the power. I'm going to do it. You will be my people. I will deliver you. I will be your redeemer. And I'm going to flex my guns and Pharaoh's going to know what's going on. I am going to work out your salvation. I am going to lay the smack down on your oppressor. Friends, we need to hear this. This is but a foreshadowing. You see, Jesus would come to your oppressor and my oppressor and he would crush his head. Who's got the power? Who's got the power? Satan doesn't have even, it's a whiff of power next to Jesus Christ. Amen? Who's got the power? He said, I'm your salvation. And he indeed would redeem them to himself. But first, first he has to deal with this punk Pharaoh. He then goes on to lay the boots to Pharaoh with nine different devastating plagues which would absolutely ruin his kingdom. But it's amazing, even after these nine devastating plagues, Pharaoh still has the gall to think he's the boss of the situation. He's still trying to call the shots until the very last plague. The very last plague when Israel is redeemed to their true king their true king by the blood of the lamb. You see, in the 10th plague, the angel of death would pass over the land of Egypt and the firstborn of every household would die. But, but if, 
if one sacrificed the spotless lamb and took the spotless lamb's blood and put it on the covering of the entrance of the house and they ate the lamb within that house, they would be spared. What is this pointing to? What is this ultimately symbolizing? God's lamb, God's firstborn's death. He would die to pay our wage, to pay our punishment, to pay for our inheritance, the inheritance of our sin, of your sin, of my sin, which is death. He's starting the foreshadow right there. Do you see it? Who's going to set them free? King Jesus is setting them free right there. Ultimately, this freedom is sealed by a mighty act that we know as the parting of the Red Sea. You see, Pharaoh, after the loss of his firstborn son, in his grief, would kick the Israelites out of the land. See it? God God always rings true in his promises, right? He always fulfills them. Pharaoh kicks them out of the land, and God would lead them to the edge of the Red Sea. In the meantime, Pharaoh's heart is yet again hardened. He's gathering his army. He's hot on Israel's trail. What is God going to do? He's got two million people at the side of the sea. The Lord causes a wind to blow. And he parts the waters like walls. Picture it. Look at this cafe, like walls of water on either side. And he makes a way through the Red Sea so that his people can travel on on dry ground. Who's got the power? God's got the power. God's going to do it. I am the who of your salvation. And what happens to the Egyptians as they try to pursue the Israelites into these waters? The Lord collapses the waters on Pharaoh's mighty army. There's so many messages in here this morning that we must not miss. See, the Apostle Paul would look back on this point of the redemption story of their history. And he would say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, that this is their baptism moment. Like baptism, they didn't even get wet. What's going on here? You need to understand the way that an ancient views that sea that they come up against. See, an ancient in that area, it all, they all agree that the sea is the point of death and chaos. Those deep waters, that's what they represent to them. Okay, And so what is happening here is God is parting the death, parting the chaos that they might pass through death to new life on the other side. This is consistent. God made the, made the world out of the waters, created life out of death. He saved Noah from the death of the deep waters. Do you see it? He's foreshadowing the baptism that you and I would have into Christ. Then in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, we also see another big message within this story. It says this, Exodus 14, 13, 14, Moses says, fear not. This is right when the Egyptians are pressing on them. They're like, what are we going to do? We're at the Red Sea. What's going to happen? Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. You need to understand what's being spoken here. See the Yeshua of the Lord. That's Jesus' Hebrew name. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. Hey, the Lord will fight for you. And you have to only be silent. Do you see it? 
You see, who does the work of salvation? This is 100% a grace-based salvation through Yeshua. Jesus, my friend, has made a way through death by his blood, the perfect spotless lamb, and his baptism. They merely had to take one foot and put it in front of the other because the Lord made their salvation possible. They just had, the faith, had to have the faith to walk in it. Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 says, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Notice, Egypt, no faith in the king. And they died. See, I love this, though. It doesn't, I love this because it doesn't explain what kind of faith are we talking about here? I mean, how, how quickly did they have to go through the Red Sea? Right? I can just imagine there's some people seeing like the wall of water on either side and you have the guy with full confidence. He's still like, yeah! Take that, Egypt! Woo! My king rocks, right? But then there's going to be the other person going, all right, kids, this is how you do a speed walk. All right? That, that's the Olympic version of a speed walk. We all know it's like, come on, come on, come on, kids. Come on, kids. Church is starting, right? They get the speed walk. Why? Because either side, there's walls of death and they're just waiting to collapse on us. We got to get through. We don't know how long this is going to be open. Let's go. Right? There's different levels of faith, but the beauty of it is they just had to put one foot in front of the other and follow his lead. So now what? Egypt, their oppressor is destroyed. Woo, right? We got two million people and we're in the middle of the desert. What's going to happen now? How are they going to survive this journey to the promised land? Here's where we see that not only are they redeemed to their king by faith, but they are redeemed to follow their king by faith. And they would indeed have to follow by faith throughout the wilderness. Throughout the trials of the wilderness, we see that Israel is ultimately being led by their king, but he's also the one that is feeding them. First, we see this in Exodus 13, 21. It's also repeated in Exodus 14, 19, and 24. We see this. Who's leading them? I mean, they're in a land they don't even know about. Who's going to tell them the directions? I'm going to tell you who's leading them. The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud in which... The angel of the Lord is. Who's the angel of the Lord? Jesus. Jesus is leading them in the wilderness. At every time they picked up camp and went to the next location, it was Jesus that led them there. Again, we see that he in his cloud is meeting with Moses in order to give them his law, to teach them his ways, and ultimately to teach them how to govern these two million people. And again, in the cloud, he settles Okay? He settles right in the heart of their camp. Their entire camp is to be built around the tabernacle, the tent where they would worship him. Do you see it? He's right in their midst. And they're offering sacrifices of worship to him. How are they getting fed? Well, in the wilderness, they receive what they call bread from heaven or manna. In John 6, verses 35 and 51, Jesus claimed to be the bread of life that comes from heaven. Only his manna lasts for forever. 
How do they get any water? Well, they get water out of a rock. They get living water out of a rock. It's moving water. In John 4, 14 and 7, 37, Jesus claims to be the source of the living water. Only his water is the water that lasts for forever. Who's being foreshadowed as their hero throughout this story? Who is their savior that set them free? Who is their provider that's keeping them going? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see throughout the story, even, well, what about Moses? I thought Moses was the one through which this was all coming. Hebrews 3 says that Jesus is the better Moses. Even Moses in his role in the story is foreshadowing the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The king is amongst them, leading them, teaching them, providing for them that they might worship him. Friends, that's a huge fast forward. That's a massive fast forward. The depths of the foreshadowing that take place in the wilderness are unbelievable. But for sake of time, we got to keep going. Again, What do we see? We see the solution in the wilderness. Isn't the when are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? But trusting the who is going to do this? Jesus, the Lord. Do you ever notice that I just throw out that word trust? Anybody ever say that? Just trust him. Anybody heard that? It's an easy word to say, right? Is it not hard to do? More I realize and walk with God, this concept of I got to trust God as my satisfier. I gotta trust God as my provider. I gotta trust God as my strength and my savior. I gotta trust him. That trust is tried every day, is it not? Why is it so hard to trust him? Because if we're honest, we all still have a little bit of a slave reflex left in us. You see, we've been trained not to trust God, but to trust our old idols. To fear our own master, old master. See, we've had a lifetime of relying on those old idols of romance, food, entertainment, security, wealth, status, pleasure as our satisfier in the wilderness. Sometimes in the wilderness, we look back to the land of our slavery. We look back to Egypt and somehow in the heat of the day, and the delusion sets in. Somehow we think that that master is better. Satan is all too glad to fuel that narrative because it leads to death. Friends, is Jesus trustworthy? Is Is he worthy of our trust in the midst of the wilderness? You better believe it. He's showing it in this story. He showed it on the cross. And Jesus demands to be trusted as worthy of abandoning everything else for. The question is this. Do you trust his presence enough to rid yourself of those idols? Do you believe in his kingdom enough to be okay in the midst of the suffering that is today in the wilderness? Do you believe that he wants to satisfy you? Do you believe that? Do you trust in his strength, not yours, to achieve the satisfaction that you're longing for today? That's the question for us today. Let's continue. Israel is in the midst of being redeemed to the kingdom. But how does this journey to the kingdom end? 
I mean, would this massive group of people walking through the wilderness, led by Jesus, would they trust their Redeemer when it came time to give them the kingdom? In Deuteronomy 1, verse 35, and Deuteronomy 32, verse 52, we see that the first generation, and in fact, Moses himself, didn't enter into the promised land. All those people that just saw the great salvation of the Lord would die in the wilderness. Why? Why? Because they're trusting in the wrong who. You see, Israel, when they get up to the promised land, they start not looking to God as their strength. They start looking around and saying, do we have the strength to take this land? Even Moses, when they're in the wilderness, he highlights his own strength to get them the water, not God's. Apparently, they haven't been paying attention to the who of their salvation in the first place. If you're like me, you spent a lifetime going, what is the deal, Israel? I mean, that generation saw the Red Sea go, and they walked through on dry land. Where is their faith? Right? Who's, Who's thought that? Who's thought that? I thought that. Okay, I'm like, I've questioned their sanity, but you got to see it. You got to see it. We're just the same, folks. Jesus rose from the grave, sealing our freedom. He rose from the dead. And yet we are constantly looking to our own strength to get us through every day, are we not? Too often we wake up relying on our own strength to get to the kingdom and not his. Would you agree? I know I do. How dare I look in pride on these Israelites? But the story of Israel, the nation continues as the next generation is miraculously sustained through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until they enter the kingdom. They're miraculously sustained. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses five through six, that their clothes and sandals have not worn out. Why? So that this generation might know that I am the Lord, your God. Finally, in Joshua 6, they are led by Joshua, whose name is Yeshua. Again, Jesus. Across the Jordan. Again, new life through death. Where they simply have to walk around a walled city named Jericho a few times. And what happens, folks? The trumpets blow. The walls fall down. And the kingdom, my friends, is theirs. The kingdom comes. Again, do you see it? Who is faithful to give you the kingdom to satisfy the longing that you have for that kingdom? How do you get it? It's his strength. It's Jesus' victory. Even back then, the Lord is the who, not you, not me. Friends, the Lord has provided a redemption to himself. He wants to be your king. He has victoriously conquered the enemy that you might have this perfect kingdom. He did it. There's no place for pride in the, in the Christian faith. His sacrifice as the lamb has provided a way to have your sins covered. His waters of baptism proclaim your new life. Now he's leading 
feeding, dwelling in you, that you might worship him as you live as a stranger, a foreigner, an alien in this land, as you pass through the wilderness, heading to your true home, his kingdom. Do you see it? Does your heart celebrate it? I want to leave you with this passage. It's a passage that you might know well, but maybe it carries, carries a bit more weight with you this morning. Romans 6, 20 through 23. For when you and I, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit did you get at that time from the things which, of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The wages of your sin of mine is death. But now that you have been set free, you see it, from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. Our sin, our old master, we're set free. But the free gift, the free salvation of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you get it? Does it resonate? We're no longer slaves to sin. Death isn't our future, friends. We don't have to fear it. We have crossed over. We've gone through those waters of death to new life. Life in the kingdom is our future. And I and you did nothing to deserve it. We did not free ourselves from bondage. He did it. We are in his family with his inheritance that lasts, friends, forever. And we will be his people and he will wipe away every tear. That, my friends, is the redemption story. That is history. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we are grateful for your salvation. Father, we recognize that uh, we lack the strength to beat the oppressor. But we also recognize that Jesus has crushed his head. Father, I pray for more faith. I pray for more wonder and more delight in us at the story of our redemption. Lord, even right now as we sing that we are no longer slaves, Lord God, I pray that that would resonate in our very soul. Lord, we just praise you for setting us free. Thank you, King Jesus, for the victory that you earned on our behalf. In your name I pray, amen.